0: VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients.
1: As you practice each skill,
2: the muscle memory starts to develop.
0: Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money
1: This is
2: Bloomberg Wall Street
1: Week. We turn our attention to the markets this week. U.S. CPI numbers reinforcing concerns about inflation. And the financial stories that shape our world. A really different reaction to markets. More indications of just how hot the U.S. economy really is. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Catherine Keating, CEO of BNY Mellon; Sam Zell, Chairman and Founder of Equity Group Investment.
2: Bloomberg Wall Street Week with
3: David
1: Weston from Bloomberg Radio. A Fed chair speaks, a president delivers his blueprint for the next two years, earnings roll in, but a tragedy in Turkey overshadows them all. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week, I'm David Weston. This week's special contributor Larry Summers of Harvard on whether we're headed for a landing at all, soft or hard.
4: I think the Fed understands that it doesn't
1: understand. Stephen Meyer, the man responsible for New York City pension funds, on investing for the long term in this uncertain market. There's a lot of things to consider out there, the risk of a recession here and abroad. And Josh Bolton of the Business Roundtable on what the President's State of the Union message means for American business. You won't find a single member of the Business Roundtable saying, please put me in a completely
4: unregulated environment.
1: There was a lot for Global Wall Street to pay attention to this week, but the tragedy of the earthquakes in southeastern Turkey cast a shadow over it all, as the death toll reached into the tens of thousands, and the difficulties of reaching those in need seemed almost insurmountable. But even as the world came to terms with human disaster, we also focused on the economy and inflation. When Fed Chair Jay Powell talked with Bloomberg's David Rubenstein about the latest jobs numbers and whether they changed his mind on further rate hikes. This process is likely to take quite a bit of time. Uh, It's not going to be, uh, we don't think, smooth. It's probably going to be bumpy. President Biden delivered his annual State of the Union address and called for bipartisanship, even over the catcalls from Republicans on things like the border. Congress must restore the right. And And energy policy. I said, we're going to need oil for at least another decade. And that's going to exceed beyond that. (laughs) The fallout from that Chinese spy balloon continued with questions about whether, if it was a Chinese test of US defenses, the US passed that test.
4: They wanted a display of weakness and I think to some extent they got that.
1: I don't know why this wasn't shot down prior to it entering US airspace. Earnings continued to pour in, with Disney surprising the upside on earnings, the downside on subscribers, and newly returned CEO Bob Iger announcing a major restructuring and the trimming of thousands of jobs.
3: We will aggressively curate our general entertainment content. We will reassess all markets we have launched in and also determine the right balance between global and local content.
1: The markets reacted to all this by being all over the place. The S&P 500 started out lower on Monday, spiked up after Powell's talk on Tuesday, only to come back down to earth on Friday, ending the week down just over 1%. The Nasdaq had a tougher time of it. It, too, shot up on Tuesday, but settled for the week down 2.4%, while the yield on the 10-year rose more steadily through the week, starting out at 3.55% and ending up just over 3.7%. To help us sort it all out, we welcome Christina Hooper, she's Invesco chief global market strategist, and Joanne Feeney, partner in Advisors Capital Management. Welcome back to both of you. Great to have you here, Joanne. Let me start you with, with you, if I could. Uh, did the markets get a little bit more sober by the end of the week? They seemed a little euphoric after Tuesday.
5: Yeah, David, I think that's exactly what we saw. Uh, you know, the Fed has had a hard time convincing the markets that there's a lot more work to be done to, to bring down inflation. You know, and they need to understand, the market needs to understand that if rates are going to go higher and they're likely to stay higher through the year. We're almost there in terms of the market's forecast. They do still expect one rate cut at the end of the year. But, you know, that is uh, quite a different position to be in relative to the beginning of last year, where we saw many rate hikes. So there's certainly less of a headwind this year from further rate hikes, but we're also not likely to get that break that the market is hoping for any time this year.
1: Well, Christina, what about it? Is is the market slowly giving up on that break later in the year? We had been told the market's saying we're going to have a cut by the end of the year. It looks like they're not so sure of that anymore.
0: Well, hopefully um, they get accustomed to that idea because I don't think we're going to see a cut by the end of this year. Um, The economy is in better shape than I think most anticipated, so there really isn't a reason for the Fed to cut rates later this year. Something would have to go um, very wrong um, for the Fed to need to cut rates by the end of the year. It looks like it's going to be a softish landing.
1: So, 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 Joanne, what about the economy looking stronger? Can we talk about the economy? Because you talk about different parts of the economy. I mean, you get different results. I mean, look at housing. It doesn't look that strong at all. And some people this week were talking about a so-called rolling recession. I know that's something you take issue with.
5: Yeah we're certainly seeing some parts of the economy in contraction housing as you pointed out certain parts of the technology sector where we've heard about lots of layoffs uh, shrinking PC uh, production significantly down year over year so there's certainly parts of the economy that are suffering contraction but there are also parts of the economy that continue to expand and when you look at the aggregate of what consumers have to work with in terms of spending power we have seen real disposable income rise for the last six months. So consumers still have more to work with, and I think that's why we're continuing to see relatively robust numbers in terms of of spending.
1: Yeah, Joanne, this is an important point you made to me. I want to make sure we unpack it, which is we have a tendency to take a look at wages, and we say real wages have not gone up, they've even gone down. Uh, And that's for individuals. But if you look at the additional people coming to the workforce, you can have the aggregate actually going up, which says something strong about the economy.
5: Yeah, that's exactly right. And in fact, if you look more granularly at the data, in fact over the last few months we're seeing an increase in real wages as well. So you combine that with more people in the workforce that gives a lot of support for consumer spending. Now it doesn't mean that a recession may not be coming at some point in the future. High interest rates are clearly an impediment to economic activity whether it's firms investing or households borrowing for the next car or or, or to buy the next house. So we're by no means sanguine that the recession threat is over. But we do see continued strength, uh, for now at least, from the consumer side.
1: Well, the consumers, as you know, Christina, is all, what it's all about. What is it? Something like 70% of the economy, something like that, is a consumer. So what is the state of the consumer as far as you can tell?
0: Well, I think the consumer is in fairly good shape. Um, what we see, of course, is an incredibly tight labor market. That's a problem perhaps for the Fed in terms of its concerns about inflation. But it's, it's a wonderful thing to have um, when you have rates going up, right? You have so many people employed. Um, yes, they've come under some pressure in different areas because of the rate hikes. Um, but in general, people can still afford to go out and shop. And so it's a very different environment than what we saw um when when the Fed was, was hiking rates and, and unemployment was higher. I mean this is a very, very um appealing labor market that leads to a fundamentally sound consumer uh, in general.
1: Joanne, so much of this depends obviously on what the Fed thinks, not what we think, what the Fed thinks. So, what do you think the Fed is looking at? What will it look at as it ties ties whether to keep moving up and how far to keep moving up and how long to hold it up there?
5: Well, you know, David, the Fed's made it pretty clear that they're really focused on a persistent source of inflation, which could be coming through wages. And so nominal wages are still rising they look also at the uh, ECI the employment cost uh, compensation index which gives you a, a much more accurate view of what's really going on in terms of compensation so they're concerned that that's continuing to rise at a decent clip and that that could feed into inflation they're seeing inflation still in their super core measure that is services excluding housing and so they're going to watch that really carefully and that's why when they say they're data dependent that's really what it means if they see that start to slow down then I think everybody can breathe a bit of a sigh of relief. But right now we're still seeing a lot of demand for services that are keeping that inflation pretty robust. At the same time we're seeing more labor flow into the services sector. So if you think to the fundamentals of inflation it was all about shortages of supply. Now we're starting to see supply rolling back through into services that could help the Fed solve this problem. But that's what they're going to be watching.
1: Christina, there's a lot of talk about plateauing or holding at some point, maybe not quite yet, but after maybe a couple more rate hikes. Uh, what if that's not enough? I mean, we know there's long and variable lags for monetary policy. What if, in fact, inflation does not come in? How dangerous it is if the Fed levels off and then resumes hiking because inflation comes back?
0: Well, that's the concern, right? That's the ghost of Paul Volcker, is that if you don't extinguish every ember of inflation, it could come back um, and and fan the flames of, of higher inflation. Um, however, I think we can take a page from the Bank of Canada's playbook. Uh, they announced recently that they would have a conditional pause. So they're going to be very, very data dependent, watching the economic data and inflation data like hawks. And I think that that could be a model for the Fed. Um, that means that if anything is concerning, they can move right back into action, and markets know that that is hanging over them.
1: Well, that's interesting. What do you think of that, Joanne? Would that, would that take care of the problem for the market so they wouldn't react too adversely if they had to hike some more?
5: Oh, I think the market still would really like to see the Fed cut. <laughs> um, so, you know. If they signal, if they say, "Okay, we're we're done for now, and and they'll always say they're data dependent, I I think the market might grow a little bit too enthusiastic. And then if the Fed does turn around some months later and and say, oh, sorry, we we still have to raise rates some more, there'll be one of these resets again. So I think we're in for a year of volatility. Uh, both because of what the Fed is doing and the larger risks that the world economy is still in the middle of, whether it's the war, energy price and, and supply dynamics. I just think it's a it's a tough year heading, heading through this because of this ongoing recession risk and the unknowns about rate increases.
1: Thank you so much to Christina Hooper and Joanne Feeney. They're going to be staying with us as we turn to questions of asset allocation in this, as Joanne just said, very uncertain market. That's coming up next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg.
0: It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.
5: This
2: is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio.
3: Actually, it turned out to be a remarkably good week for the president. His approval ratings have never been higher, suggesting that if only two or three more scandals can break between now and Washington's birthday, he'll have every American behind him. His State of the Union address, which began with a plea for fiscal responsibility and continued with an extensive laundry list of brand new ways to extend governmental power and spending, seems to have played
1: beautifully in Peoria, not to mention Poughkeepsie and Palm Springs. That was Louis Ruckheiser with his firm and his tongue firmly in his cheek on Wall Street Week back in January 1998. You may remember that was the week after the Monica Lewinsky scandal broke. That's what he was talking about with another presidential scandal. Titanic was the number one movie that week. And the number one song was Together Again by Janet Jackson. Still with us are Joanne Feeney of Advisors Capital Management and Christina Hooper from Vesco. Christina, let me start with you. Because we've just talked about what we think is going on with the Fed, what's going on with the economy. How do you put together a portfolio? How do you allocate your assets in this world?
0: Well, first, David, I have to answer the question I keep getting asked, which is, is the 60-40 portfolio still alive? And I think to a certain extent, it very much is. The concept of diversification is so important, and I think we will see the benefits of it this year. And actually, not just equities and fixed income, but some alts in there as well to provide um, um, lower correlating assets. Um, My view is, As with Joanne, um, I believe we're going to see a significant amount of volatility, especially in the first half of this year. There's just an awful lot of uncertainty. So we're going to want to have uh, exposure to fixed income and some dividend-paying stocks. Uh, We need that income to stabilize as we move up and down. Um, I also believe uh, that, that as we move further into the year, we're likely to see markets start to discount an economic recovery. And so that would be a time to start to perhaps increase equity allocation, especially among the more cyclical parts of the stock market. But fixed income looks attractive, especially investment grade. Munis, um, those are, are very attractive yields right now. I like to think of this as almost a golden age of fixed income. Um, so, so that's a, an important component of portfolios right now.
1: Joanna, what do you think? I mean, that sounds like a fairly diversified approach, but with an emphasis on getting some cash, whether it's from dividends or otherwise
5: yeah we offer a range of opportunities it really depends on the client on the investor and what their time horizon is you know at at this point there are certainly some opportunities in the market that if you're a long-term investor you can be all in on equities but you know a lot of our clients are also looking for that cash flow and so you know we like to offer them choices a mixture of stocks that will appreciate versus stocks that will deliver uh, that yield alongside a fixed income and let the the client really decide you know how much they want to put into equities at this point based on their time horizon and their risk but yeah I mean I agree given the volatility that we've just talked about this is an awfully good time for a balanced strategy to protect the the principal in the portfolio and hopefully if you can get enough of uh, yield on the dividend side and also on the fixed income side you you can eat your cash flow to pay your expenses if you're in retirement and that will save you from having to sell stocks When the market does go down. Christina,
1: what about you? It can't be the case we're going to have as many rate hikes this year as we did last year, I don't think at least. Uh, So what does that mean? Certainly it says something about bonds, but beyond that, what does it tell you as an investor?
0: I do think that it it gives certainly um, some space to technology, right? The the tech sector is likely to to start to see better performance, uh, especially as as rates come down. Um, But I also believe that what it really does is clear the way for an economic recovery right? That once we have a stabilization um, uh, of of, uh, rates, um, that is really when the economy can start to recover, accelerate. And I think stocks are going to anticipate that. So so we're likely to see smaller caps perform well. I also think the dollar is going to be relatively weak this year. That's a trend that's going to continue. So emerging markets equities, especially Asia EM, we haven't even talked about the China reopening, but that is going to be really powerful for Asia EM.
1: Oh, What about, Joanne, briefly here at the end? strong bounce back, do you think,
5: this year in the overall stock market i think the i think the jury is still out on that uh you know looks pretty good from the consumer side fewer rate increases is a good thing uh, but ultimately, we do have a pretty substantial decline in certain sectors of this economy. We have to see if housing comes back. So I, I think it's uh, it's an open question. That's why we are counseling to really diversify and, and be prepared for volatility.
1: Sounds wise. Thank you so much to Christina Hooper of Invesco and Joanne Feeney of Advisors Capital Management. We welcome now a big-time, serious, long-term investor, and he is Stephen Meyer. He is the Chief Investment Officer for the New York City Retirement System. Welcome. It's great to have you here, Stephen. Thank you, Dave. It's a pleasure to be here. So you've got a big responsibility, $250 billion, 750,000 people depending on this. We've got firemen, policemen, teachers for their pensions tell us about the investment climate as you see it today it's a bit different than it was just two or three years ago given where we are with interest rates inflation growth
2: yeah well david i think it's going to be another challenging year in twenty twenty three for the u.s economy and financial markets Uh, as a long-term investor we tend to look less at the fluctuate short-term fluctuations in asset prices uh... we have diversified portfolios that actually are geared to weather all different markets uh... my hope and expectation is for the global economy to you know for growth to um... Uh, bottom out this year, uh, and inflation start to decline more meaningfully. Uh, we have inflation coming down in the states, uh, less so in Europe at this point. You know, there's a lot of things to consider out there. Uh, we look at um, the risk of a recession here and abroad. Uh, we're coming off of the, one of the most aggressive interest rate hike cycles uh, that we've seen by the Fed in 40 years. Um, you know that monetary policy operates with a long and variable lag. So we really haven't seen the impact of those rate hikes yet. Uh, and those rate hikes continue. The Fed hiked 25 basis points earlier this month. They've hinted that they're probably going to do another two, and that's what Fed Fund futures are pricing in. Um, we also, as I said, inflation abroad is still sticky on the upside. I also think there's a heightened level of geopolitical risk to consider. Uh, the war, uh, the Russian invasion of the Ukraine is problematic. We worry about that escalating. And I do think from a longer-term perspective, the dynamic between the U.S. and China and the relationship, I think, will have uh, uh, implications for growth, uh, competition asset allocation for uh, years to come.
1: So Stephen, you have the luxury of a long-term perspective. On the other hand, you have to have the money when the pensioners need the money as a Absolutely. practical matter. You have to generate returns. 2022, as you say, was a rough year. You, we had stocks and bonds both down as a practical matter. What does that tell you as an asset allocator about stocks, bonds, and maybe the alternative to the above? So
2: stock and bonds, you know, it's rare that they go down in tandem, but it's not unprecedented. And you're right, David. Last year was a tough year. We had that Traditional 60-40 equity fixed income bond split generated a negative return of 16%. Uh, that's painful for all manner of investor. Um, we do again look on a long-term horizon, we want that balanced portfolio. But you're absolutely right, we had the the offset, if you will, of uh, private assets. We have about a 20-22% allocation into private assets. Uh, spanning uh, private equity, private credit, uh, infrastructure, core and non-core real estate, as well as hedge funds. So we do have those offsets that that, that can help
1: drive that performance, uh, irrespective of what happens in the public markets. You said 22 percent. You've had a cap of 25 percent, as I understand it. That's now been raised to 35 percent by the governor, Kathy Hochul. Do you expect to use a lot of that uh, increased cap? Well, that's a wonderful
2: question. So, I, you know, the new legislation was signed into law by the governor at the end of the year, uh, and it definitely will give us an expanded opportunity set. We'll be able to have a, a more optimal portfolio. Uh, my expectation is, you know, we're going to start the process of reviewing our strategic asset allocations with the five uh, plan trustees and their consultants. Um, hoping to wrap that work up by, say, October. And then perhaps if there is a change in strategy, that'll be implemented in 2024 and beyond.
1: Stephen, it's really great to have you here on Wall Street Week. Thank you so much for joining us. That's Stephen Meyer, he's the Chief Investment Officer for the New York City Retirement System. Coming up, we wrap up the week with our special contributor, Larry Summers of Harvard. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg.
3: because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at stiefel.com. That's S T I F E L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas and Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE.
0: It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.
5: This
2: is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio.
1: This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. We welcome back now our special contributor here at Wall Street Week. He is Larry Summers of Harvard. So Larry, one of the big events of this week was uh, Jay Powell, the chair of the Federal Reserve, speaking with our very own David Rubenstein in the Economic Club in Washington. And the markets came away from that saying, you know what, he didn't go as far as we thought he would. It's saying we've got to tighten more given those jobs numbers. Are we becoming complacent? Because there's talk on Wall Street now that there won't be any landing, whether it's soft or hard. Basically, we'll just keep going.
4: I think the Fed understands that it doesn't understand because no one can know the future uh, with confidence. And I think that the Fed is determined to do what's necessary. That's certainly what I hope uh, is the case in a substantially uncertain environment. I think the consensus has become uh, substantially too complacent about inflation for a variety of reasons. First, let's be clear. Even after the reductions we have seen, inflation today is at levels that would have been unimaginable uh, for inflation two years ago. And so we haven't come all the way down or got this fully under control. And in a way, uh, I guess one way to put it in Super Bowl week here is that it's easier to move the move the ball down the field at midfield than it is when you're in the red zone, and we're getting closer to the red zone with respect to inflation, and so I think the gains in terms of further reduction are going to come harder. Second, I think there are a variety of bounce back uh, factors that we're going to have. You saw it in the uh market wholesale used car prices which look like they're gonna be a positive contributor to inflation. You've seen some reversal on uh gasoline prices more broadly. You've seen a variety of prices that blipped way up uh nine months or so ago and now that's mean reverting. Now that's coming back to normal. Well it's not always going to be going down and when those become normal that's going to be an increment to the underlying uh, inflation uh, figure. And so that too, I think, is a cause for concern. Third, if you look at the variables that economists tend to think that you should look at to predict what's happening with inflation, we are an economy that's got relatively loose financial conditions now, given what's happened to markets by some measures financial conditions are looser than they were when all this tightening started that's probably misleading but we probably are back to somewhere where we were late last summer in terms of the degree of tightness in uh, financial uh, markets and we've got that at a time when we still have a record level of vacancies relative to unemployment so I think With that kind of picture, the prospect that we are not on a trajectory now where inflation is going to get to the target level, and therefore this tightening cycle is not just about one more, two more, three more, 25 basis point increases, but something more fundamental That's a substantial probability uh, in uh, this environment. So I don't think it's a moment for any kind of uh, euphoria. Um, And I think there is
1: some complacency that's setting in in many places. Larry, we heard from Chair Powell on Tuesday. and A few hours later, we heard from the President of the United States, Joe Biden, as he gave his State of the Union address to Congress. Uh, He did talk about some economic things, fair number in there, including some you and I have talked about, such as Buy America. What did you make of the economic part of President Biden's speech?
4: Look, I think the most important thing to say, about the president's uh, State of the Union was that it was probably the clearest, strongest exposition of his economic philosophy that he has delivered during his two years as president. I did worry that as I heard him talk and speak powerfully, and I thought persuasively about the junk fee issues and the extra money people are paying for airline baggage or paying for overdraft uh, fees or a variety of those other junk fees. I liked that because it was recognizing that people's incomes People's spending power is what matters, and that depends on how much they earn, and it also depends on the prices they pay. I hope the administration is being very careful about that comprehensively. My guess would be that the extra taxes people are going to pay because projects are going to cost more because of buy, uh, Buy America. The extra prices people pay because of tariffs that we put on in the name of create or maintain, in the name of creating American jobs, my guess is that those higher prices from things that we're doing through policy probably add more to consumer burdens than all the junk fees that the president spoke about. So I I think we need to look very, very carefully at uh, those uh,
1: policies. Larry, one thing that you and I have not talked about, I don't believe, is Israel and Benjamin Netanyahu's new government over in Israel. There are a lot of political and legal issues involved, but there are also some economic issues. As you know, a number of U.S. economists, I don't think were involved, uh, wrote a letter really expressing concern about some of the proposed changes in the judiciary, what that could mean for the Israeli economy. I was a little surprised to see your name came up, actually, in the Times of Israel as having uh, talked to the Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. What do you want to tell us about? they 're doing over there
4: so David I don't I don't talk about uh, my uh, conversations with government officials as uh, you know but I have been following this issue closely and I think the temperature has to come down on uh, both sides I think there is a case for strong case for judicial reform uh, in Israel it's unusual by international standards for judges to be chosen by currently sitting judges. It's unusual for courts to be able to rule out legislation uh, simply by judging that it's unreasonable without having a constitution uh, to point to. On the other hand, it's very clear from the context of the way this is being done that it is feeling to a large number of people and a large number of people with the capacity to move their money in and out of Israel, particularly in the entrepreneurial community, that an overly rapid, not carefully done judicial reform could raise serious and profound questions about the rule of law. And that, it seems to me, could have quite serious adverse effects on uh, the Israeli economy.
1: And finally, Larry, at the end of the week, we received word that Mr. Kazuo Ueda may well be appointed the next governor of the Bank of Japan. He is an academic economist, as I understand it. He has served in the past on the Bank of Japan Policy Board. Do you have thoughts about either Mr. Ueda or where the Bank of Japan needs to go next?
4: You know, I think we can think of him as being uh, Japan's Ben Bernanke. He studied at MIT at about the same time that Ben did, with the same thesis advisor that Ben Bernanke had. He specialized in similar areas of monetary economics and has a soft-spoken academic way about him but is also capable of being uh, decisive. And I think Japan has a very complicated issue ahead of it. I don't think it's going to be able to maintain yield control for an indefinite horizon. And he has big shoes to fill. Uh, I've known uh, Kuroda-san for more than uh, 30 years. He's an extraordinarily uh, capable, analytical, but also with a real measure of cunning uh, central banker. And he, he, will be, uh, he will be missed. But uh, knowing Mr. Ueda, I've got quite a bit of confidence in his ability
1: to chart a course forward. Larry, thank you so very much. That's Larry Summers of Harvard, our very special contributor here on Wall Street Week. Coming up on the road again, to New York, to Virginia, to Australia, but to Hong Kong? That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Finally, one more thought, on the road again. The pandemic hit travel like nobody's business.
3: During the pandemic, people stayed at home. They didn't go to movies. They didn't
1: leave their homes. They didn't travel. As the world's economy shut down, so did the airlines and hotels. I think we've never seen an economy coming out of a shutdown like this at a moment like this when the world is in the kind of
2: unusual and unique spot that it's in.
1: But now things are coming back with the airlines adding business as fast as they can.
4: It's a billion pound balance that we did and we achieved also the highest earnings ever in the the last quarter in the company's history.
1: And Airbnb reporting a big jump in demand.
2: What we're seeing is hosts made record earnings this past summer.
1: Given the uptick in tourism it's no surprise that governments are back in the business of luring visitors. New York urges visitors to come check out the slopes. There's something for everyone in New York state. Virginia urges us to come back to Williamsburg. And even Australia is getting in on the act with a campaign featuring Hollywood stars Will Arnett and Rose Byrne, or at least computer animated versions of them.
4: There's nothing like Australia. special,
2: huh?
1: But perhaps the most remarkable of these campaigns is Hello Hong Kong, complete with offers of 500,000 free airline tickets. See you in Hong Kong. Which is badly needed given the reported plummet in tourist visas to Hong Kong from a pre-pandemic high of 56 million to reported 100,000 in 2022. Though putting 47 prominent Hong Kong citizens on trial for national security violations isn't likely to help that situation much. One thing is for sure, Secretary of State Blinken won't be traveling to Hong Kong. He had to cancel his China trip because of that pesky spy balloon. We concluded that conditions were not conducive for a constructive visit at this time. And there is one legendary football player who will not be traveling to Phoenix for the Super Bowl. Though Tom Brady's decision to retire managed to drive up the price of beachfront property, or at least the beach he was sitting on when he made his announcement. I'm retiring good. With reports that a jar of sand from that beach was bid up to almost $100,000 on eBay at one point. And even if Mr. Brady doesn't make it back to the Super Bowl, he can always head to Orlando. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week.